hey, we are so super excited to have you here tonight. And whether you were here last week, whether you're coming along tonight with a mate or you're here for the first time, we just want to let you know uh, that we are so glad to have you here. At the same time, we want this to be a space where you can feel uh, welcomed and feel like you can belong before you have to believe or behave in any way. As Clarissa and Pat said as well, my name's Riley. I'm just part of uh, the team that's here on a Sunday. Uh, And we're super excited, actually, because we're jumping in right now into a four-part series. We're in part two of this series right now called Starting Point, which we launched last week. And if you weren't here last week, you're all good. I can catch you up to speed there. Uh, Because the tagline of this series is this, that everything has a starting point. Everything has a starting point. When it comes down to your career, when it comes down to what you are studying, uh, when it comes down to your friendships, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to your marriage life, when it comes to your romance life, everything had a starting fact, a starting point. In fact, you had a starting point too. So in light of this idea of starting point, we've been unpacking this idea that your faith actually had a starting point. For you, maybe when you hear the word faith, uh, you can identify that with uh, straight away as a follower of Jesus. Maybe at the same time when you hear the word faith, you kind of have pushback, you kind of have tension straight away because you're thinking, Riley, that's not really something I'm all about. This idea of faith and the starting point to your faith that we're talking about is really the lens that you actually view the world and how you actually go about responding to some of these bigger questions in life. This idea of your faith, your faith journey that you are on, regardless of whether or not you see yourself as a Christian, this faith journey as to how you go about answering some of these bigger questions of why is there suffering in the world? How can there be so much good but also so much evil? What is the meaning of life? These bigger questions around what is your purpose and why you are here. So to give you that overview there, we kind of pulled back from this idea that your faith has a starting point and mentioned this. We said that the Bible says... The Bible says, when people tell us what the Bible says, it is not an adequate starting point to our adult faith. The Bible says, maybe when we were little, maybe when we were at church ourselves, when maybe we were in primary school or high school, when someone told us that the Bible says, and this is what we need to base our faith off, this is what we need to base our life off, it is not an adequate starting point to our faith. Because we know that as we grow older, as we move from this childhood faith of being told things about uh, being told things, and as we experience things as we age, as we go through puberty, as we go through marriage life, as we meet new people, as we go through career downfalls and relationship breakdowns, that there are life struggles that we face where the Bible says is simply not an adequate point for us to base our life off. It's simply not an adequate foundation. So as we've been looking at this idea of the starting point of the Christian faith, the question that we identify that we really need to wrestle with and the question that we're going to be talking about tonight, the question that if we can struggle with in any way, it is this, the question of who is Jesus? That in light of trying to look at the starting point of your faith, the question to struggle with is who is Jesus? Jesus. And maybe if you were answering this question uh, in church when you were little, or maybe when you went uh, to an Easter service or a Christmas service, you would have had someone up the front or someone tell you through a song that Jesus is the one who died for your sins. That Jesus is the one who died for your sins. And this could either mean something to you as a follower of Jesus in terms of your faith journey, or at the same time, it could mean very little to you, if not mean anything to you at all. Because sin in itself, 
Sin in itself, even when you look at it on a piece of paper, even when someone says it up the front or even when someone says it to your face, sin in itself is a very odd word. In fact, your definition of sin, your interpretation of sin, is probably very different to the person next to you. Probably very different to someone who maybe doesn't see themselves as a follower of Jesus because it's this theological word. It's not your everyday word. Sin is an odd word. You don't get pulled into the office by your boss for him to sit you down or her to sit you down to say, listen, Riley, we need to talk about some stuff. We need to talk about your sins. It's not a thing. It's not an everyday word. You don't have a police officer pull you over and say, hey, we caught you on your phone back there, back where the intersection was, uh, and listen, we, we have to put you down for a sin citation. Like, here's your sin citation. We, we saw you commit sins. It's not something you pull out when you're on a soccer field and you pull a malicious slide tackle on someone in a game of soccer, only to be given a yellow card by the referee. You don't complain to the ref and you don't forgive yourself to the ref by saying, oh, ref, that sin is on me. That is my burden to bear. It's not something you say. Sin is not this everyday word. We don't just chuck it out in sentences. It'd be weird. No one uses sin as an everyday word. Sin's the word that you might have heard a lot at school. Sin might be the word that you heard a lot at church. Sin might be the word that you hear by that Christian person that you saw on the TV that time that was trying to justify themselves in some way. Sin might be the word that you heard from that guy down in Queen Street Mall and the guy on the coastline with the sandwich board around his neck and the flyers that he's flailing out to everyone telling you that you need to repent or else you're going to hell, that you need to repent of your sin. Because if someone was to walk up to you and say to you that you have sinned, you're not going to say thank you. You're not going to say thank you. You're not going to turn to them and say, I totally get it. You're right. I'm wrong. I'll repent. I'll take the flyer that you've given me. You're going to feel offended. You're going to have pushback. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. How can you tell me I've sinned? What do you even mean by the word sin? And sin for us, sin for us at times when we look at it on a piece of paper or when we hear it just through someone's voice, sin carries this full stop exclamation point. Sin can carry this heavy negative connotation that doesn't leave you with any wriggle room. It doesn't leave you with any room to blame someone else. And in that way, sin is like looking in the mirror like looking in the mirror at all your own problems. At the end of the day, coming back from a bad day at work, picking the kids up from school and seeing them absolutely devastated and knowing that there's nothing that you can do in the spot that you're in right now. It's this feeling of going to the mirror and seeing yourself as the problem when you are stuck in a tricky financial situation, when you're going through a relationship breakdown, when someone in your family or a loved one is sick and you don't know what the next step is anymore. It's that feeling that we face when we look in the mirror and sin carries this heavy connotation that wraps up all these feelings, all these problems in our own life. And sure, there's there's something within us that doesn't align or doesn't add up or something or someone that tells us that we should know better when we're in situations when we feel like we've sinned or when someone has told told us that we've sinned. We ask ourselves, why do we put ourselves in this spot again? We tell ourselves when we make these mistakes that I will never, I'll never put myself in this position again. I'll never put myself in this position where I'll hurt myself again. I'll never put myself in this position where I'll hurt somebody else again. I will never make that mistake 
again. But when we hear it up the front, or we hear it at church, or we hear it at school, we hear it in Christian studies, we hear this word sin used corporately, it's used corporately, and it comes across like such a blanket word. Sin kind of turns into this thing where it's merely just one mistake or a series of mistakes. Because granted, because granted, when it comes to this idea of mistakes, you'd be much more willing to put your hand up to say that you have made at least one mistake in your life than you would be in saying that you have sinned. And we all have different definitions of sin because it's easy to tell ourselves that our sin is really just a type of mistake. The thing to wrestle with, though, is that some mistakes we make, we make them more than once. We make them more than twice. We make them more than thrice. Which leads us to this question, can we really make a premeditated mistake? Because there are some times that we make mistakes on purpose. Sometimes we actually plan our mistakes. There are mistakes that we make knowing that we are going to make them. So can we really make a premeditated mistake? Is that a thing? We see in our world that some mistakes are so prevalent that there are people in parliament, people in politics, people that stand on a global leadership level that make speeches annually and apologize for mistakes annually, these wrongs of the past. Yet history repeats itself. Often we make mistakes over and over. But if you have ever known someone, someone in your life or even looking at your own life, someone that you know or yourself who constantly makes mistakes that hurt you, people in your own life or yourself, where you put yourself in a spot where you actually hurt others or someone in your life hurts others or hurts themselves, at what point would you not just turn your back and walk away from them? Because there is no way that you could trust someone knowing that that person and what they're doing wasn't just a mistake, but it was a planned mistake. It was a mistake that was made on purpose. Yet, our everyday actions repeat themselves. We ask ourselves, why am I not able to do what I know I'm supposed to do? Because mistakes, mistakes are meant to be corrected. But we don't correct the mistake, not because we can't correct the mistake, but because we can't correct ourselves. We can try and let our parents help us. We can have friends that can pour into us and try and answer some of our questions. We can have partners. We can have husbands and wives that can help us out in times. For some of us, when it comes to correcting our mistakes, we pay people a lot of money to sit down and walk through some of these problems and tricky questions we're facing in our life. But for some of us, we go about correcting these mistakes by turning to things that we feel can fulfill us. We turn to drinking things. We turn to short-term relationships. We turn to these short-term things that will fulfill us in an instant hit in a method of trying to correct ourselves. Before we do that, we, before we even go about unpacking how we can go about correcting our mistakes, we actually have to admit that there is just simply a problem with, that there's not just simply a problem with the world, but more so, the problem is, is that a mistake is not always just a mistake. In general, if we were to look at the idea of what, what a sinner is, a, a general definition we could give is that a sinner is someone who knows better, but does it anyway. A sinner is someone who knows better, but does it anyway. And if sin breaks relationships, if we can see that our mistakes our sin breaks relationships. It shows that we as people are broken people. 
what needs to happen for it to be corrected? What is the cost for us to actually have a life where we can step into the person that we've been created to be so we can step into the life where we can go about living in the full of our potential and in the full in our relationships too? How do we go about correcting ourselves? Like I said, we wanted this series to be an add value series for everyone. An add value series for those of you that are followers of Jesus. Maybe for those of you that are on a journey right now where you're interested in finding out a little bit more about this guy. And even for those of you that have complete tension, complete pushback. We want to craft this series for everyone so you can go about living a life where you can actually be the person who you were created to be. To live a life where you don't have to worry about these mistakes that you feel like you're making all the time. Tonight, I want to unpack with you how we go about, yes, correcting ourselves, but to do so through answering this question that we will be turning back to a lot throughout the next couple of weeks, this question of who is Jesus? Because when it comes to the eyewitness accounts, these eyewitness accounts of people who knew Jesus and people who knew people who knew Jesus, these stories that are written and are dated back across the timeline of history, How Jesus talks around sin was always pretty clear. It was always pretty clear. It pointed back to this idea that sin ruptures, sin breaks, and sin severs relationship. And last week, if you were here, we we looked uh, at the words of this guy called Paul. This guy called Paul who has a pretty interesting journey in himself because Paul was actually a guy who was way back around the time of Jesus who actually had an encounter with Jesus. But before that, Paul was someone whose sole job, his whole career, was actually based around exterminating Christians. His whole job was going about killing these people that he saw as a Jewish cult. And it wasn't until he had, had this radical encounter with Jesus that he actually ended up stepping into a relationship with him. And in what we were looking at in Acts last week and what Paul was talking to and who he was talking to were a group of people in Athens who had no idea about who Jesus was and what this whole Jesus movement about, let alone who Jesus was and what he had done. And as we continue to look at this question of who is Jesus, we're going to jump back in and and check back in with Paul this week and look a little bit more at some of the things that he has to share because he has a pretty unique perspective, a pretty unique insight. And where we're picking up from this week uh, is actually um, Paul talking to a church in Rome, the, the Roman church. And in this point, when we're talking about church, don't just think of the church as a building. In the time of Paul, the church was an early movement. It was a movement of people. It was a community. And this Roman church was made up of two separate communities. You had this uh, Jewish Christian community that were very traditional. They saw themselves as God's chosen people. In fact, to show people that they were God's chosen people, they even went about snipping some parts off their body to show it. They were circumcised, and at the same time, they were holding on to these traditional beliefs of what they knew about God. And then you also had the Gentiles. These were new believers, new believers that had stepped uh, into relationship with Jesus and joined this Jesus movement. And they had spread out across Rome, but there were these two communities that had this tension point with one another about what it actually meant to be a follower of Jesus and what the next step was for them. So Paul steps in. Paul intervenes with his unique lens and goes about answering the question of how you actually go about correcting yourself as a follower and believer of Jesus through answering the question of who is Jesus. 
to bring you into this story, we're going to jump into Romans 3, verse 21 to 24. If you want to whip it up on your phone as we go along, it'll be up on the screen. Though. This is how Paul kicks off and kind of sets the scene to this church in Rome. He says, in our time, in our time, something new has been added. In our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. And Paul was really contextualizing what he was saying to this Jewish community. But because for them, if you look across the Old Testament, God's chosen people were put through a lot of trials in the sense that they were literally given instruction. They were given commandment by God as to what they were to do and how they were to live out their life to the point where this guy called Moses even came to the community, to these people who were in relationship with God with these Ten Commandments written on stone, but they still made mistakes. They still turned away. So in light of what Paul's saying, he contextualizes the message that there is something new that has arrived. To the Jewish community, there is something new, brand new that has came, and it will be a game changer. That God forgives his people through the course of history, both forward and back. And he continues on to say that God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. That God has intervened and he's ridden his way into the story by coming down as man. And not only for us, but for, who, uh, for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them. Paul talks about this intervention, not just for the Jews, not just for those people that were circumcised, that were living out their faith through this identity, not just for the Gentiles, not just for these new believers that had just stepped into relationship and were still trying to figure out what it even meant to be a follower of Jesus, but for everyone, for everyone of the past and everyone forward, not just for the traditional, but for everyone who believes in him. Despite their questions, despite their faith journey, for everyone who believes in him. Paul continues, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God did it for us. That even though we are utterly incapable, that we are utterly incapable to find strength in ourselves when we are so quick to surrender to the temptations of life, and we are so quick to surrender to pulling others down so we can push ourselves up. Even though we are utterly incapable in maintaining healthy relationships with people, in the midst of wanting to drag them down with gossip, even though we are utterly incapable of feeling like we have a balance in our own life. Paul says what God has done, he has done it for us. So what was it? What was it that he did? Paul writes, out of sheer generosity, out of sheer generosity, he puts us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. That out of sheer generosity, it was a gift. Out of sheer generosity, he had ridden himself into the mess by sending Jesus, by coming down in human form, by sending his son. And it's not something that we have to earn. It's not something we have to work towards through good works and all the rest, but through a sheer generosity, through a pure gift, through something that we can receive. It is something that he always wanted, that God wanted to be in relationship with us from the start, that it was us who turned away, he says to the Roman church. God never wanted to be separated from you. And he did it all by the means of Jesus Christ. 
that who Jesus was, as we answer this question, was God in human form riding his way into the messiness of life, riding his way into the messiness of the narratives of our own lives, that Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was always about restoration. It was never about condemnation. And in Paul's day, the language of redemption, the language of restoration, was referred to as the price paid to free a slave. If God created everything, we have to think, why didn't he just end it all? If there is actually evil and suffering in this world, if he is such a good God, why does he let so much evil happen? That if God really was just this puppet master that just sits above and watches the world play out like a game of sins, if he just desires control over everything in every way, why didn't he just come down with the flood when things got messy? Why didn't he just come down with swords and start all over again? Or with an agenda to end all the evil and darkness by ending it all? Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was restoration, not condemnation. Rather, Jesus came and wrote his way into the mess with nails in his hand to rescue us as helpless and slaves of our own mistakes, our own repeated mistakes that we make of the very things we see of ourselves when we look in the mirror at the end of the day and the mirror that we wake up to the next day to this cycle that we put ourselves in of our own sin. Now, sin that ensnares us in the cycle of anger and this frustration of ourselves when we feel like we're falling into the trap, not just an addiction in the sense of alcohol or self-medication, but an addiction to drag others down so we can feel superior, so we can not feel inferior to others. When we live in denial of how our actions are actually trampling others, how our actions are trampling loved ones, how our actions are trampling our families, this sin that doesn't allow us to step fully into the person we were created to be because we find ourselves so busy looking at ourselves as the problem. We look at the mirror and we try and figure out whether or not we're okay, whether or not we're just okay, whether or not we need to be better, whether or not we think we are the best and everything that we feel like we have to do in the middle. And look what leaks from our own insecurities, our own fears and stresses and anxiety starts to consume who we see ourselves as in the mirror. As we get soaked up in seeing ourselves in our reflection as the problem. Like I said, we wanted this series to be an ad value series for you. And we believe here at Beyond, there's, there's no point coming to church on a Sunday. It's not going to change you. It's not going to impact you for Monday. So tonight we have a for Monday for you, which is really just an application side of tonight's conversation. And this week's form Monday actually comes in the form of a question. And it's a question that you can answer based off your own past experiences, based off what you're feeling in the present and what your concerns are over the future too. But the question is also for you whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not. And the question is this, where do you place your trust? Where do you place your trust when you're at your best? Where do you place your trust when you're at your worst? Where do you place your trust? Do you place your trust in terms of your performance and your results at uni or school to try and fill up your self-worth? In times when you feel down, do you place your trust in your ability to do well and do a good job at work? Do you place your trust in light of the career that you want to step into, in light of the finance game, in light of the wealth that you have, do you rely on the resources that you have in your own life to give you an identity where you know that you are doing something right, where you know and feel like you're not a problem anymore? 
In light of someone being able to tell you what is right or what is wrong when you're at your best or your worst, do you place your trust in your friends? Do you place your trust in your parents? Do you place your trust in your family, in your spouse? And a lot of times when things seem cloudy, when things seem vague, where do you place your trust? For some of you, you would say your friends. For some of you, you would say your family. You would have a couple of close people in your life, in your inner circle, that you know you could turn to to give you the right answer, that you know you could turn to and attempt to try and correct some of the mistakes that you've made in the past and some of the ones you feel like you're going to make today and some of the ones that you feel like you're going to make in the future. For some of you, trust in relationships is tricky. For some of you, you've trusted people before only to be let down. And you know that trust is something that is so quick to be broken, so easily broken. So you end up turning to yourself. You turn to yourself and you take on this lone ranger approach where you whack on your cowboy hat, you jump on your horse and you ride off into the distance knowing that everything that you're carrying is your burden to bear. Every problem that you feel like you have, every insecurity that you're keeping on the inside and trying not to let show on your external shell is something that you're holding onto for yourself and carrying for yourself, knowing that there might be some chance of hope that you can get your head above the water. In light of what you experienced in the past, in light of what you hope to experience in the future, where do you place your trust? In light of what's going on in the mess of life, in light of things like financial responsibility, in light of trying to live out a career and a job where you're an efficient worker, where you're someone that can show other people that you are known, that if you're not better than someone else, you are the best, where do you place your trust? In light of trying to be the best role model for your friends, in light of trying to be the best role model for your kids, for your children, in light of trying to live up to the expectations that you feel like your parents or your grandparents have set in your own life, where do you place your trust in the midst of the concerns, in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the stress? In the cloudiness and the vagueness of times where you don't have the clarity that you really desire and that you really want. In the times where you find yourself slipping into this state where anxiety is taking over, depression's coming into play, where darkness starting to come into your life, who do you turn to? Where do you place your trust? If we're not pointing or seeking answers from the universe, which for us as people is so easy to do in the world that we live in, if we're not pointing or seeking answers from other people in in our life, then we're trying, uh, then we're turning to trust ourselves to figure out the solutions to all these troubles, to how we go about living a successful life, how we go about living a life with purpose, how we go about answering this question of why we're actually here. It's hard when we wrestle with fears, when we look in the mirror and we see these things in ourselves, these fears in ourselves of not being unique, of feeling helpless, this fear of being hurt again, when we look in the mirror and see this fear of being lonely, fear of being controlled, a fear of not being good enough, a fear of not doing things right, a fear of being unloved or unwanted, or this feeling of feeling worthless. If you can't trust yourself, who can you trust? Because if it's not a what, if it's not a thing, then it has to be a who, it has to be a someone. Those who knew Jesus best, tell us that he's the starting point of faith, that he actually came to bridge the gap created by sin, 
not our unintentional mistakes, but our sins so we can live freely in a life and a world that isn't controlled by a cycle of fear, but a life that was freely given to you by God that sees you with immeasurable worth. There is a heavenly father who sees you and saw you as more than just another teen, just another young adult, another husband, another wife, another grandmother, another grandfather who is very confused about what the right next step is to live a purpose-driven life in a world that at times leads us to feel like we have nothing but purpose. And what Paul shares with us, and what Paul shared to the early church in Rome is that there is a heavenly father who sees you and saw you of so much value, of so much worth that he didn't send a book down with answers. He didn't send people down with short-term solutions or to tell you how to go about living your life, but rather he sent his son, his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross as a pure gift. Sheer act and sacrifice of generosity all for a relationship with you. So you can not only but can always live an eternal life with him knowing that who you are, that who you are is a gift from heaven. That who you are is a living miracle, that you are of a measurable worth, that you are worthy to die for. He's the ultimate giver. He takes nothing. If that is the case, what are the, what are the questions that you have to ask? What is it that you're searching for? Who do you trust to give you the proof not just the proof of the evidence, but the truth that you really seek. Who is this Jesus that loves you so much that he came down and wrote his way into the mess of life all for you?